Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The Hog Talk Podcast is brought to you by Heinemann Services. Hyman Services is a family-owned and operated business whose work ethic and customer service will restore your confidence in handymen. They offer interior and exterior projects for your home or business, including repairs, installations, small remodels, landscaping, decks, fencing, and much more. Call Corey and his crew today at 479-347-9336. That's 479-347-9336. Till I give my money right. I had a dream I could buy my way to heaven. When I woke, I spent that on a necklace. I told God I'll be back in a second. Man, it's so hard not to act reckless. To whom much is given, much is tested. Get arrested, guess until he get the message. I feel the pressure under more scrutiny. And what I do. Razorback fans, welcome in to episode number 88 of the Hog Talk Podcast. My name is Kyle Sutherland. I'm going to be riding this one solo, going to catch you up on a little bit of Razorback news that we've had over the last couple of days, and just do that for the first few minutes, and then right after that, we'll be interviewing former Razorback long snapper Nick Brewer, who you may remember during the Petrino days, going to talk about some of his time when he was in Fayetteville, and also the eating contest that he and another former Razorback, Grant Cook, have been doing to raise money for COVID-19 relief, and he will also discuss the national coverage that that is getting. So I'll let him talk about that, and I'll start off by talking about the fifth Razorback commit of the 2021 football class in Jermaine Hamilton-Jordan. He, of course, committed uh, on Sunday as I'm recording. It was a few hours earlier. Of course, this will drop on Monday, but this is the most fresh news that we have. He's at a Lincoln College prep in Kansas City. Add some depth to that linebacker room. Actually, the second commitment uh, for 2021 at linebacker behind or along with Marco Avant out of Jonesboro. So, as I said, we have five guys now, two offensive linemen, two linebackers, and then Landon Rogers at quarterback. And we thought that we might possibly getting that other quarterback that we might. It's looking like that they're going to sign two quarterbacks in this class. And it was possibly going to happen on Cinco de Mayo. But the one that we thought might happen is, of course, Lucas Coley, as you might have heard Ty and myself talk about on the last couple of Friday shows out of San Antonio Cornerstone Christian. It's looking to really be between Arkansas and Houston at this point. And his other Power Five offer that he has besides Arkansas is Washington State, but it's uh, there seems to be some steam picking up on the Houston ordeal um, of him going there. I can't confirm nor deny. That's just some rumblings that I've been seeing, but who knows? That may have some weight of why he postponed his commitment. But we shall see in the near coming future once he does decide a date. If he even does decide a date, he might just come out and commit like we've seen just about every day (laughs) it happens all the time and so that's the recruiting news that we have right now one new commit for 2021 and then one that we thought might have for 2021 early next week early this week I guess since this will drop on a Monday um, has postponed so we will see with Lucas Coley's decision in the future The final news that I have right before we get to the interview is Mason Jones is officially off the market as at least coming back to Arkansas. 
he signed with CAA Basketball, the agency, and they he is officially um, not able to come back to school, as I mentioned. And I, I'm still not quite sure. I really don't know whether to bet on whether he would be drafted or not. I think he should be. I've said that hundreds of times. But it, it's really just about all – depending on the situation that he's put in. We've seen so many different NBA execs and NBA analysts and all these say that he is NBA scouts, whatever, you, however you want to slice it, has said that he is a phenomenal player, had a great season, but the best that he has a chance of getting drafted is between that 45 and 60 range there at the end of the second second round, which, of course, all that there is is two rounds in the NBA draft. I have really been – pondering this the last couple of days I had said when I first joined the hog talk that I do believe that Mason Jones and Isaiah Joe are going to stay I have since retracted that since before he had signed with the agency I just got to the point where I really didn't know especially with the talent coming in and the dominant season that he had last year what more he had to prove and that kind of factors into my next point I don't really know that a lot of people have looked at it this way, and I'm not necessarily saying that this is my thinking, but did he hurt himself possibly by playing the way that he did this season? Now, I understand that sounds a little bit idiotic. Like, how is he supposed to play? You're supposed to play at the top of your game. That's what he did. Nine 30-point games, two 40-point games, depending on – who you look at? Who, who you look at? Uh, the the voters in terms of that. Some of them voted as him as the SEC Player of the Year. I think, and especially in Razorback Hearts, he was m- most definitely the Player of the Year. But with how truly great he was, and still not getting those great NBA, like really even close to a first round grade. Did he possibly hurt himself with how well he's playing? Just because he's kind of stuck with nowhere else to go. Because you know with the talent coming in next year that he won't be able to do what he's able to do, at least game in and game out. He was clearly the difference maker last year. Of course, you had great games from Desi Seals. You had great games from Isaiah Joe. You had great games from Jimmy Witt. But Mason Jones was the clear cut, could come out any night, put up 30-plus as he proved. And so, had he just had a decent season this year, now, if he would have only had a decent season this year, then they probably would not have won 20 games. But, would he have come back next year with more talent and more help and still made enough noise to possibly move himself into the first round? That's strictly, look, right now we don't have sports at all. We've got all, now I do throw a lot of hypothetical things out there, but that's just another way that I was thinking about it. Because even if he came back next year, I think that he could hurt himself more than he could help himself. And that's why I retracted what I had said about him and Isaiah Joe staying. Something I want you guys to think about, uh, and let me know. You can can at the Hog Talk on uh, Twitter or you can at me, Sutherland 54, Wu Pig Sui, or WPS. I want to hear your opinions. I mean, I know that probably some of you are going to tell me I'm a complete idiot. I, again, that's not my thinking necessarily. I'm not saying that he hurt himself. I just think it brings up an interesting conversation. We're going to go to a quick break real fast, and then we'll have Nick Brewer on. Stay with us. 
Since 1984, Max's Garage, located at 1010 South Rock Street in Sheridan, Arkansas, has been your one-stop shop for all your auto repair needs, including tune-ups, oil changes, transmission repairs, and they can even help you with your body work. Stop by or give Max's a call today at 870-942-4612. That's 870-942-4612. Back on the Hog Talk Podcast, happy to be joined by former Razorback long snapper Nick Brewer. Uh, you guys have been on Twitter lately. You've probably seen the eating challenge that he and former offensive lineman Grant Cook have been doing. And so we're going to talk about that, also his career as a Razorback. But first, Nick, I want to thank you for coming on, man. Appreciate you taking some time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So let's start off by talking about your coming because you have you grew up in Austin, Texas, and uh, you of course got recruited out of there. So talk about your time there when Arkansas contacted you, or if you reached out to them, and just your recruitment process with that. Yeah, so like you said, I grew up uh, in Austin, Texas, and my best friend in high school was a punter on the on the team, um, and he was recruited by Texas, Oklahoma, LSU, um, eventually Arkansas. And uh, at the time, uh, spring of our senior year, he was committed to Texas as a preferred walk-on. And uh, then Arkansas reached out to him. So, ironically, under Bobby Petrino, his director of high school operations was Dean Campbell. And Dean Campbell played college football at the University of Texas with my high school head coach. So, when Bobby Petrino took over, he wanted a, I guess, a really good walk-on punter to compete with Jeremy Davis, if you remember Jeremy Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so through through Dean Campbell, Dean Campbell knew of my best friend, Nick Grasshoff, uh, who was the punter at my high school, reached out to our high school coach, got in touch with him. They started talking to him. And I guess when they were watching his tape, uh, they saw me snapping to him. And then they said, hey, who's your snapper? We want to talk to him too. Um, so they brought us up on an official visit together, kind of as a package deal. And uh, I had, in high school, I had won a deep snapping competition at Texas A&M University. And my dad went to Texas A&M, my brother went to Texas A&M, my sister went to Texas A&M. I was committed, or, you know, I was going to Texas A&M, uh, and I was going to try out to walk on. Um, I had a dorm room deposit paid, I had a roommate set up, and then after this official visit to Arkansas, I said, you know, I said to my friend Nick, I said, hey, man, like, I don't care what you're doing, but I'm do- I'm coming here. Arkansas offered preferred walk-on. And uh, so we both ended up committing. Um, and, and so I, I joined the team as a walk-on, ended up earning a scholarship my third year. Scholarship was taken away my fourth year when a freshman, Alan Dapolonio, came in and took the starting role. Um, and then I earned my scholarship back my fifth year under John L. Smith in uh, 2012. So it was a interesting ride from the beginning to the end. Um, you know, we saw a lot of ups and a lot of downs during the time on the team. But That was going to be my question to you that I had next was, do you initially – you said you didn't have a scholarship to begin with. Is right. it is it very common at all for, for long snappers to get a scholarship? Like, does that happen very much whenever you're straight out of high school? Or no, is, that, it, is it, it always a walk-on? 
it's not common at all. Um, so there's, there's actually it's gotten bigger and bigger since I was in high school. So I graduated high school in 2008. Um, and back then it was just becoming popular. There was punting camps, kicking camps, and long snapping camps. Uh, so there's a few specialists, you know, Chris Rubio, um, Chris Saylor, that do these camps all over the country. And, um, and really that's how you get exposure as a long snapper, as a specialist. It's through these guys who are known by college coaches to be experts in the field of deep snapping because not many people know anything about it, right, as far as what makes a good deep snapper or what you want to look for. So these guys, being experts, get all the kids to camps. They travel all over the country. Uh, so you can find camps near you. I would go to camps in Austin, Dallas, Houston, uh, actually a, a camp in Las Vegas, and you kind of get your name out there through them. They have a site where they rank you based on, you know, your consistency, the velocity of your snaps, uh, kind of your potential as an athlete. You know, how big are you? Can you do you have a frame you can build on and stuff? So these guys create this this database and, and list you, and then college coaches can kind of go through them to uh, to get your information. So uh, it's a weird it's weird how it works out, but unless you find yourself in my situation where um, I happened to be snapping to a really good punter, and he was the the tape that I got seen on. So, you said you were initially committed to A and M, correct? Right. So I, I was, uh, gosh, I think it was under it was under Dennis Francione. I had won the deep snapping camp, and they asked me to walk on. And then the year that my senior year in high school, I believe Mike Sherman came in, or the other way around. Yeah, Mike Sherman was next. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so I reached out to the new coaching staff, and I said, hey, I won this deep snapping competition. Uh, you know, I was asked to walk on. like, just want to see where we're at. And they said, well, you can come try out to walk on, but we're not going to guarantee anything. So um, that was what I was going to do until it was it was spring break in my senior year in high school. So it was mid-March when Arkansas contacted me. Um, I was on a cruise with my family, actually, when Arkansas contacted me. Kirk Botkin was the special teams coordinator. And uh, so it was a last-minute decision. I didn't know one person in Arkansas. I had uh, – had a big drawer, so I was, I was pretty smart in high school, I, and uh, I kept all my academic letters I'd received from universities, and I had seven academic letters from Arkansas I never even opened, never even considered the school, not even to open the envelope, so uh, it's crazy how it works out and, you know, where I find myself now. So plan for a coach like Bobby Petrino, of course, we've all, anybody that that is pretty involved with college football knows the intensity that he coaches with, but is most quite, most definitely one of the smartest offensive minds in the game. As grueling as as his practices were and how hard he was on you guys, did that really once you started winning and of course you won 21 games in from 2010 to 2011, was that just kind of something that you really didn't think about a whole lot because of how crazy campus was all the time and you guys were winning a lot? Is, is it just something that wasn't even really in the back of your mind about how hard his practices and just how hard of a guy he was? No, I don't think – I mean, really, from him, he, he expected perfection, and if you didn't give that to him, he'd find someone who did. Um, so, for I mean, for specialists, you know, we had a, a graduate assistant for, I think, three three or four of the years I was on the team, uh, Marty Biaggi. And so, every practice, he was with us, and he would work with us on – I think he was, he was a punter at Marshall uh, when he was in college. So, he knew snapping, he knew kicking, he knew punting. And uh, so, he would spend every practice with us. Um, and for the most part, it was, I mean, we did a lot of stretching. We did a lot of snapping, punting, and kicking, uh, going through stuff. But, um, I, I would say, I mean, for the skilled players, for the linemen, for everyone else, it was a much more structured practice where the specialists are kind of, you know, most of the coaches don't know, you know, what do I do with the specialists? Like you can't, 
can't have the punters running scout team because their legs get tired and they can't punt or the kickers. Um, so a lot of it was, I mean, as far as us, the, the end season was a little bit, I wouldn't say laid back, but it was, it was less intense than off season when the specialists are doing all the workouts with the team. Uh, you know, we're doing the same thing everyone else is doing, but during the season, uh, really they want us to be rested, you know, for the one opportunity you get to go in and, and do your thing. Um, you know, we're not, we're not running drills. We're not running scout team. I, you know, I ran scout team just because when I wasn't the starter, um, I figured I need to, you know, contribute in some, some regard. So, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was, you know, you had a lot of, we had a lot of one-on-one attention. Marty Biaggi had a really structured, um, you know, we would write down goals every single week. We would have three goals every single week. So it was very structured in terms of what we worked on and why we did things. And you saw that, you saw that on the field, just the results, you know, Zach Hawker, I think he was one of the most accurate kickers until, um, what's the, the most recent guy. Um, and just, I mean, A couple of uh, fun. Obviously, you saw we won 21 games, and we were we were pretty good. A couple of sorry, they cut out there a little bit. Um, the, a couple of funny moments that I had heard about <laughs> uh, was when now I know that you told this story on the um, on 103.7 The Buzz last week about the the LSU game. Go ahead and run us right. by that whenever, because uh, I know that probably a lot of people listening to this have have heard that, but I, I want to hear you tell that again because I was I, just like everybody else was just rolling on the floor laughing about it. <laughs> right. So so 2010 was the only year I was the actual starter on the team. 2009 I was the backup uh, to Rhett Richardson, so I traveled to all the games, and then 2011 2012 um, I was second and third string. I bounced between second and third string. Um, as far as long passes, 2010 was the year we ended up going to the Sugar Bowl. And, um, <clears throat> sorry, we were playing LSU in Little Rock uh, at the War Memorial game. It was rough, I think. Uh, Kobe Hamilton caught it at about midfield. The two LSU defenders collided. And uh, Kobe took it all the way down the field for a touchdown. And, uh, you know, as a deep snapper, like I said, I'm going on the field maybe – maybe four, five, six, seven times a game to snap extra points. Uh, you know, back back in those days, it was a lot more. It was probably six or seven times at least a game. Uh, um, so I was well-rested. I wasn't out of breath or anything. Um, you know, I got running out on the field right before halftime to snap the extra point. And the whole LSU defense, you can just see they are exhausted. You know, they've been running. I mean, we're big plays left and right. And, uh, you know, Drake Nevis, I believe it was, was the defensive tackle for LSU. Big, I mean, he was a, a NFL draft pick and everything. He's standing there with his hands on his hips. And he's looking at me, and I'm standing there. And I, you know, I was I was 250 pounds back then, so I was a bit, I was a big guy, you know, in, in normal standards. But standing on the field between the offensive line and the defensive line, I was the smallest person on the field. So I didn't I didn't say much. I kept my mouth shut all the time because uh, I figured everyone else could you know push me around if they wanted to. And uh, you know, he's standing there looking at me, and he looks at me, and he goes, "Dang, white boy, he goes, you got a big old head." And uh, Everyone on the offensive line, on the defensive line, just starts laughing. And I had a, so I, had, I wear a size seven and three quarters hat. So I have a very big head. Um, I had to wear a, a special ordered extra large helmet. Uh, so probably disproportionately looks, you know, my head looked big in the helmet compared to my body with everyone else standing around. So, um, you know, he said that. And I, I come off the field, I look at my lineman, and I was like, guys, you're supposed to get my back there. Like, you're supposed to say something back to him. But they all just thought it was so funny. They couldn't – I mean, they were going to say anything 
back to him. So that was uh, probably the most memorable on-field moment for me, um, other than my one call it career tackle. Yeah, I can imagine it was pretty because most of the time in that situation, I know when you would probably come out to do the extra point, it's the defense is yelling at each other like, "What in the world just happened?" So for that right. random thing to happen, I can I cannot imagine the <laughs> right, the, right. Yeah, that's pretty good. Well, there was another thing that I saw actually a couple of years ago, and I was able to look it up on to just Google it as opposed to search and search on Twitter. But you're not a big fan of American Airlines because of the whole skipper wedding. I, I remember that. <laughs> Tell us that story. After this, we'll get into the eating challenge, the main reason why we had you on. But I wanted to hear the background behind that, what what ended up happening, because I never saw the aftermath of it. Right. So I'm, I'm usually pretty active on Twitter, and most of it's, it's lighthearted, uh, humorous stuff. Uh, a lot of interacting with corporations, kind of like American Airlines, Hilton Hotels. Um, I do a lot of personal travel. Just, I have a lot of friends all over the country, all over the world, really, that I like to go. And um, so that, that particular time, I, was, I had gone to Vietnam uh, with Rick Cook, actually. We went to Vietnam with a couple of my buddies from London who met us there. And uh, we spent we spent about two weeks in Vietnam traveling the north and the south, and then uh, we had flights back. We were supposed to arrive about midday, the day of Dan Skipper's wedding in Dallas, Fort Worth. And so his wedding was at the Dallas Zoo, uh, I believe it's six or seven in the evening. So we figured, okay, we've got six or seven hours. We can land. We'll go to our hotel. We'll shower. We'll maybe get crush a nap because it's a it's a 17 hour flight from Hong Kong to Dallas. So it's a long it's a third world third third longest flight in the world and so we're thinking okay we'll have plenty of time to, to nap to shower to get dressed to go to the wedding and uh mid-air we're over the pacific ocean come on and they say hey fyi the, the flight crew so the flight when you're flying for those of you who don't travel much um flight crews are only allowed to work a certain amount of hours in a certain amount of time so they kind of have it's like you know they're 40 hours a week kind of thing right and Apparently, mid-air, the flight crew realized that they had they were going to run out of hours before we got to Dallas. So they announced that we would be landing in Los Angeles, changing flight crews, and then flying on to Dallas. Um, and so it was only supposed to be like a one-hour a one-hour you know land. Flight crew gets off, new flight crew gets on. They check to make sure the plane's good, take back off, and we're only delayed an hour, right? It's a miserable airplane, um, and the new flight crew just didn't show up for three, four hours. So we sat after a call it 15, probably 15 hours in the sky on this plane, sat on the runway for three or four hours, and just sitting there waiting for a flight crew that was supposed to be there that was nowhere to be found. And uh, so I got on my phone, and I, uh, as you saw, started tweeting at American Airlines, trying to figure out like how how a scheduling error like this could occur and that, uh, you know, we were going to end up missing our, our friend Skipper's wedding. And uh, so we end up eventually taking off from LAX. We land at Dallas. I think we landed we landed right at the end of the actual wedding ceremony. So we, we took our car from the airport in Dallas, drove to Fort Worth, uh, got our hotel, changed, changed real quick. We didn't even have time to shower, changed into our suits, went to the wedding. We made it there for like the last 30 minutes of the reception. Um, so we pretty much missed the entire wedding, but we got, we showed up in time to see everyone to say, Hey, we made it. And everyone had seen the tweets. They, I think a news station picked up the tweets or something. <laughs> you know, it was just former Razorbacks trying to get to, you know, Skipper's wedding and having trouble or something like that. So 
it was just this ordeal. And American Airlines ended up, I think they gave us, you know, 12,500 miles, which is a, call it a free round trip to Dallas um, in terms of miles to make up for it. But it was, uh, it was an unexpected delay. And that's what you always got to build it. You know, trying to get back right on time for a wedding is never a good deal with, uh, with anything and everything that can go wrong. And I can't even imagine the fatigue just in general. Like you said, you're trying to maybe get a, a nap off before you go to the wedding and you're already the third longest flight in the world. I'm sure that that didn't do anything to help calm your nerves either. No, no, it, it sure didn't. It, uh, and I think the time difference, I want to say it's 13 to 15 hours time difference in Vietnam versus here. So basically when it's 6 a.m., it's 6 p.m. And you're just, you're, we were all turned around. I mean, just everything could couldn't have been could have been worse for us, but uh, we made it there. And we we went out with everyone afterwards to some bars in Fort Worth and uh, made the most of the few hours that we did have with everyone. Good. Well, now that we've kind of gotten to know you during your Razorback career, we'll uh, we'll switch over to the eating challenge that you've been doing for a great cause for COVID nineteen. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, you've been doing it with former lineman Grant Cook. And it's gotten national coverage. I, I saw the one, uh, it was on Golik and Mike, right? Recently. Correct, yeah. Yeah. Well, talk about the background of it, how it got started. I, I've seen things about it on Twitter, but I, I really don't know about it in depth. So just run it. How did it get started? And how did how did you and Grant, like, did, did he come to you about it? Or did y'all just decide on it together? How was it that it worked out? Right. So I'm, like I said, I grew up in Austin. And most of my friends high school went to texas a&m so i'm in this group text with some buddies that all went to texas a&m and we just keep in touch they're the guys i really i'll go go out of my way to see and stuff and um i guess historically i'm known for eating pretty sizable meals in short amounts of time just amongst my friends uh like i'll take down a large papa john's pizza in about nine minutes nine to ten minutes um, not that I'm trying to, it's just the pace at which I normally eat is just, that's what it is. So, um, and I've taken down, you know, four, four double cheeseburgers and a milkshake at 2 a.m. in McDonald's before. It's, it's not out of the realm of things. And uh, so this McDonald's tray challenge was going around on Twitter, on social media. It's like a, if someone paid you $3,500 to do this, could you finish it? It was three double quarter pounders with cheese, one quarter pounder with cheese, 20 chicken McNuggets, two medium French fries, and then four medium sodas. And I was sitting there looking, I was like, gosh, that's a lot, that's a lot of food. But I think I could do it. Like, if I had to and do it under 90 minutes was the challenge. And uh, so I was sitting there, I was like, all right, like, I can do this. And uh, this is two weeks into quarantine, into working from home. Um, and at this point, I had just been really, every night I was getting on Zoom or FaceTime with my friends and having happy hours and just kind of getting drunk and then, get up and work all day and then kind of do that over and over again. So I was in this cycle of, I wasn't really being, I was working out every day, but I wasn't necessarily being productive. There's obviously a lot of people that were struggling and I wasn't doing anything really to help anyone. And I kind of had like this moment the day before, I think where I was like, why am I not doing more? Like I have all this this time I'm at home now. I'm not commuting up to Bentonville every day. Uh, Like I was trying to think like, what can I do to help people that need help? And then my buddy sent me this picture, and they're like, Nick, you should try and eat this. So I was like, oh, this could be fun. I can make an event of it. And I've done some things in the past on, on Instagram where I have people Venmo me to do things. And uh, so I, I got to thinking, I was like, all right, like I can broadcast this, and I can, I can figure out a way to give back. And so at the time, it was, you know, obviously the healthcare workers' lives are turned upside down with all the different procedures they're having to do and just the, how strict they're having to be with anyone and everyone that comes near them. Uh, so I was like, all right, we can – let's can workers at Washington Regional 
and then I'm gonna give some random like pizza delivery driver or someone like a, a key. So I started thinking like I'll have you know 20, 30, 40 friends get involved and um, and you know donate some money and we'll be able to you know cater one meal to the nurses and then uh, you know, tip one guy you know a couple hundred dollars or something. And then I started promoting it. I started getting kind of behind it a little bit. Um, I have a marketing degree, so I get a little creative with these things. And um, and a lot of people really got excited about it, about watching me eat. And uh, so, I, so I started thinking, I was like, okay, this is getting a little bigger. And I started raising money on my Venmo. And I think I was up to five or $6,000 before I even started eating anything, before I was even broadcasting anything. Um, and a couple of days before... Tara Talmadge, uh, who's a local sports reporter in, in Northwest Arkansas, agreed to be my play-by-play commentator. So uh, with that, I sent it. I have a, a friend uh, in Los Angeles who does marketing for – he does YouTube channels and stuff for professional leagues, for uh, celebrities, all sorts of stuff. So he threw together that little graphic for me where it's – I think it's me holding a hammer or a sword or something, and it says the challenge, and it's featuring Tara, and it's you know, all these little funny things we could do to kind of promote it. And, uh, you know, then I log into my Instagram live and Tara and I are talking for the first four or five minutes. And by, by, by then there's four or 500 people logged in to watch me eat this McDonald's. And I was sitting there saying, this is ridiculous. Like people literally have, have nothing to do. There are no sports on. There's, it's a Friday night. It's like everyone's locked in their homes. They have nothing better to do than to sit down and watch me try and eat 5,260 calories worth of McDonald's. Um, and my goal, you know, my goal initially was like a thousand dollars getting creative with it. I, I looked up the calories and thought, okay, it's 5,260 calories. That's my new goal. I'm going to try and raise $5,260, $1 for every calorie I'm consuming. Um, and then I exceeded that before I even started eating. And so I was like, oh, I don't know where this is going to go. So as I was eating, I, I can't remember, I was, I was trying to think of like incentives to basically get people to donate more money, but the donations just kept coming in and coming in. Uh, because everyone, I had made it known, hey, either Venmo me saying, you know, nurses or random tip. And it just kept, my Venmo was just vibrating the entire hour I was eating. And uh, I came pretty close. I ended up eating all but about a dozen fries uh, before I threw up. Uh, <laughs> but we ended up raising about $14,000 in, in one hour of me eating McDonald's. Uh, what did we Grant, uh, so we're going to have roommates for about six years. We know each other really well. Uh, we were roommates in college, and then the, the five years after college, until he got married, I got kicked out of his house. Uh, and so he had commented saying, I would, I'll take you on head-to-head. Grant's a big, big dude. He's, he's over 300 pounds still. Um, you know, he's a big, intimidating person. You know, when you look at me, like, all right, that guy can eat. I already had it set up with Tara, and I was like, I couldn't figure out how to do screen sharing or anything like that. Um, so I, I talked to Grant afterwards, and basically the challenge was Grant is going to try and do it next. So, you know, hey, Grant, you're going to do this next Friday night, and everyone else can tune in to watch you. Um, but then that night, after I got done eating the McDonald's, I was in so much physical pain, I, I could not sleep. I didn't fall asleep until the sun was coming up, because any position I laid in, it felt like I was someone was stabbing me somewhere in my stomach. Just, I mean, you think 5,000, over 5,000 calories in McDonald's in one hour, was in my stomach um and i just couldn't sleep and it was miserable i was miserable for about two or three days afterwards i couldn't eat i couldn't exercise i couldn't do anything i wanted to do because i was so uncomfortable physically so i i talked to grant i was like grant i was like you shouldn't do this like you shouldn't do this like this is like it put me out of commission like this is not like a healthy thing to do 
Um, and obviously it was McDonald's, which, I mean, is a, is a national chain and whatnot. And we were trying to think, how can we help the local community? Obviously, the, the catering meals and the random tips is a great way to help. But how can we help promote these local businesses, these restaurants that are struggling right now, that people aren't just – they're not going out to eat. They're not ordering takeout. Like, how can we help them? And we've known uh, – we've been going to Sassy's Red House in Fayetteville since they opened in 2009, I think. Um, so we know the owner, Alan. Uh, we're good friends with him. And there's an item on the menu. It's not on the menu officially, uh, but it's called the Grant Panini. And basically it is an, an item on the menu that basically Grant, only Grant can order, where it's just double the portions because Grant, I mean, Grant's a big guy, so he eats double the portions. So Alan texts us. He goes, hey, whenever you guys are ready to try and take down the Grant Panini, uh, you know, challenge, let me know, and uh, we can do it. So we set up with Sassy's, Grant and I, and uh, tried to – to take down it was gosh a plate of barbecue nachos a plate of waffle fries four paninis uh, i had four pints of beer grant had two very large sodas uh, and then we had some fried pies at the end uh, i never got to the fried pies i think grant took down three two or three of them we both ended up throwing up again because it's just too much food um and there was some fireball whiskey in the mix there too which um those were things that people really wanted us to see in pain and i guess you know making a fool of ourselves so we raised during that we raised almost twenty thousand dollars, but ten thousand dollars of that came in the last about fifteen minutes, uh, where people were throwing thousands of dollars at us to finish this pint of fireball, and then try the koala challenge on each other, which is essentially you know you jump on like you're hugging someone, but I would wrap my legs around him, and then I try and crawl like a koala over his shoulders, behind his back, and up between his legs back into the front. Um, so somehow that, that raised $10,000, us doing those things at the end of this eating challenge. So really we raised more money by doing things that were not related to eating the food than we did actually eating the food. Um, but it was, you know, just people were so excited and they had so much fun with it. We had people from all over the people from San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York city, London, tuning in to watch us do this. And, you know, people were reaching out afterwards saying, Hey, hey like, please they put it up on the big screen. This was our Friday night movie. Was watching you guys try and eat all this food and do this challenge, and everyone sitting there Venmo, I mean, donating the whole time. So, um, so we did that, and then, then obviously last or on Friday night we did the uh, we did ten smaller plates from ten different restaurants in Fayetteville. Basically, our ten favorite restaurants that we like going to that we would take friends to from out of town. Um, we made it to tour de Fayetteville, so we rode stationary bikes between each dish to get to each restaurant, kind of thing. Um, so we tried being theatrical and kind of making it fun for $21,000 when you include the donation from ESPN. So um, we've just tried having fun with it, try to be creative, uh, keep people entertained, and obviously it's doing a lot of really good stuff for a lot of people. So, well, as good as it is going, do you do you guys plan on still doing something, at least maybe not as much as you are now, but possibly something maybe for charity once the COVID-19 is all done with or at least it slows down significantly? Yeah, I don't think we're not going to close the close the door on that. But I think you know, it's, it's so much food. It, it uh, you know, I, I didn't eat until I think I didn't eat till dinner last night, so I didn't eat it all yesterday afterwards. Um, but talking to some of the local business owners, the restaurants, um, you know, some of the charities we've been working with, demand has been going down down a little bit for financial assistance and for free meals and these types of things that people are relying on. Um, as you know, as the the guy
kind of so much that these you know individuals and these these uh, you know charities are in a very good position to keep helping people through the end of May, early end to early June, based on the funding that we've had. It was almost. 100 individual donors through us uh, have provided on that, you know, as needed. Gotcha. Well, awesome, man. Well, uh, it's great, great things that you're doing, and definitely, um, it's getting getting the name out there for a really good cause. And I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing that with us, along with uh, your career as a Razorback. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me and uh, sorry for the road noise. I'm like I said, I'm driving on I-35 right now. So uh, no, like, hey, like, it, like I told you before we started recording, man, I, you know, I, I just got back from San Antonio, so I know how that I-35 traffic and the madness <laughs> yeah. that ensues over there. So well, cool. Well, uh, that'll do it for another episode of the hog talk podcast. If you get a chance, please be sure if you have not already to give us a rating Tell us how we're doing. Give us some star power, and that'll really help us get our name out there. But as always, we thank you guys so much for listening for episode number 88. My name's Kyle Sutherland. For everyone else here at the Hog Talk, we'll catch you guys next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.